You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Welcome, everybody, to your favorite day of the week. I am your host, Adam Marez, and I am joined today not by Anthony Irwin. He's got the week off. Instead, I am joined by Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. How are you doing, Ben? I'm great, man. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, I am here in Denver, did not travel to Portland, so I don't have any horrible travel stories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I understand that you do, and that just seems – the life on the road, man, I got to say, I, I, I don't travel with the Nuggets too often, but every time I do, I'm like, God, I do not want to – I'm glad I don't do this regularly. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a real lifestyle. you got to dig all the way into it. Years ago, I was covering a San Antonio Spurs series when there was this huge uh, storm down there, and the phrase they use down in Texas, I think, is called a frog strangler. And unfortunately, we had a couple <laughs> frog stranglers this week uh, where Houston's just like totally wiped out by uh, flash flooding and thunderstorms. So it's going to be in Austin, Texas right now of all places. But um, very much looking forward to game six on Friday night. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. But two heck of a game, uh, you know, in terms of forcing game sevens and upping the drama, I think, from a Thursday night of action. Well, I, I didn't want to skim past Frog Strangler, but I guess we, we are going to have to <laughs> just gloss over that one. Um, there were two great games tonight, and setting the table for a fantastic Sunday, maybe tomorrow night, um, Houston-Golden State will follow suit and, and set us up for three Game 7s. I don't know about the last time we've had three Game 7s on the same day, so um, we might get there. But we're going to start tonight by talking about the Toronto Raptors and the Philadelphia 76ers. I thought after Game 5, I thought, okay, Toronto seems to understand what's going on in this series. They have control. Philadelphia, the body language wasn't great. I thought, okay, Toronto, um, maybe they have this. Maybe they're just the better team. Were you surprised like I was about the result tonight? Uh, I was a little bit surprised, but I'll say this about these two teams. Uh, I like them when they're good, and when they're bad, they disgust me, right? And so I think that <laughs> yeah. it's natural that we wind up in a Game 7 because I've just taken turns feeling disgusted by these uh, you know, these two teams, whoever decides not to show up. I mean, I think from Philadelphia, though, they earned this Game 7. There's no yeah. question. Electric atmosphere at home, contributions up and down from all of their main guys. And after taking a real beating from some of the uh, you know the take artists out there, I thought Joel Embiid stepped up in a, a big-time way. I mean, the number that popped to me from the box score, he, he was plus 40 in his 36 <laughs> minutes. And Boban was a minus 18 in his seven minutes, right? So wow. it's like the game was kind of ebbs and flows, but clearly Philadelphia was in complete control for most of it. What I loved about Joel Embiid in this game, 14 shots, 5 of 14. And to me, one of my critiques, one of the criticisms I have of Embiid is sometimes his one-on-one -on -one game, he's a little too into it. And tonight yep. I thought was defensively, he was just fantastic. I mean, he was the best version of himself defensively. But offensively, it felt like not only was he picking his spots to shoot, but he would use his touches in the post or on the elbows to generate shots, to draw out the double team and then just keep the ball moving. He just It didn't seem like he was hunting for his shot tonight. And to me, seeing him do it tonight, I'm like, oh, well, he can do that. And when he does do that, it's no coincidence that Tobias Harris, Jimmy Butler, J.J. Redick, Ben Simmons, they all had great nights. Because to me, a superstar, that's their role. Draw in and, and kind of create for everybody else, and he did that tonight. Yeah, for sure. I was going to ask you, what would you make of all these people coming after him over the illnesses thing? Because let's be honest, it's weird that in the middle of May, a professional athlete who these guys kind of live in cocoons, right? I yeah. mean, they're the private jets and all this other stuff. He gets sick three times in the span of 10 days. He's also been dealing with knee pain, uh, everything else going on. You know, just a very up and down, inconsistent type of postseason for him but I thought some of the commentary 
was vicious. And frankly, I would have said the same thing if he came out and laid an egg and they went home in game six. Right. I thought people went too far saying, oh, uh, you know, his sickness, is he really sick? His attitude is kind of rubbing off on his teammates. I thought that was too much. I, You know, fortunately, I'm insulated from a lot of those takes. And so I don't see him too much. But I will say from and, and you know this from just being behind the scenes, we often know very little about what ailments players are going through unless they come to light. And I just never like to question players when it comes out that, oh, they're sick or they're injured or they're playing through through whatever. I, I just take them at face value more often than not. So Yeah, I'll tell you, it's hard to podcast when you're sick. I can't imagine trying to block <laughs> Kawhi Leonard's dunk attempts when you're sick. I mean, it, it and, you know, I think people hold sometimes professional athletes to this crazy standard. I mean, the, the most obvious time they're human is either when they're injured <laughs> Or when they're sick, and I just right. wanted to, you know, get that out there. Let's let's uh, cut Joel Embiid a little bit of slack here. Let's judge him based on his play when he's healthy, when he's been okay. Uh, and you know, you can raise questions about is this a guy, you know, long term? Like the, the old debate, and I'm sure you've heard it a million times: Jokic versus Embiid. And if you're looking forward to the next decade after this playoffs, I mean, I think Jokic looks like a much stronger, safer bet as a guy who's going to be able to carry a team throughout his prime. I mean, the, just the consistency, the reliability, the triple doubles. Uh, being able to get by defensively, all that stuff has been super impressive. Uh, and beat on the other hand, like I said, up and down, very inconsistent. Uh, but let's focus the criticism in the right areas and not kind of attacking his his uh, character, which is what I think some people were doing here over the last few days. I only need the most mild cold before I turn into the biggest baby. And, and, if, it, <laughs> and if it happens to be on the road and I'm in a hotel room or something like that, away from my wife where I can like you know get Theraflu delivered to me, I'm I'm just the worst. I'm the most insufferable, softest person on earth. So I, no no position to criticize. Um, yeah, tonight Kawhi Leonard, 29 points, 12 and five. He, I mean, a classic Kawhi game. He's the one guy that for for Toronto that's just kind of no matter what you do, they're consistently good. They, Philadelphia did send the double team tonight, and I do think it sort of mitigated a little bit of the impact of those 29 points. Um, but nonetheless, you just kind of had an off night for for some of the other guys, Serge Ibaka, Kyle Lowry, even Marc Gasol, you know, maybe not as impactful on the offensive end as you expect. So um, to me, that was that was sort of the story there. But um, For sure, real quick on Kawhi, though, I mean, he did look a little bit human. I mean, he's been <laughs> shooting the ball just absolutely ridiculously this whole postseason. He's, he only shot only, quote-unquote, <laughs> nine, for, 9 for 20, right? Uh, but still, it was uh, they they held him in check relatively well. And the play that stuck out to me was Jimmy Butler just robbing him blind yes. right before halftime, picking his pocket and going in for that uh, great running layup, I think with 0.4 seconds left right before the buzzer. Huge momentum play going into the half. I mean, that second quarter was really just back and forth. Who was going to make the runs? Um, that set them up very well for the second half. And it was also just so strange to see because we've seen Kawhi on the other end of that hundreds of times yeah. during his career, right? Picking yep. somebody and going the distance and uh, the rare moment where somebody else got the better of him. And I think Jimmy Butler, to me, has been the story for the Sixers in this series. Uh, he's r- risen to the moment multiple times when they needed him, with it, when they could have collapsed and fallen apart. And I think that's why they're headed to a Game 7. That being said, I take Toronto at home. How about you? Well, I was going to ask you that, but I want to get. I was going to make one quick point here first. Is you know the the game tonight, as much as it was a blowout, there were some big runs by Toronto, and as you mentioned, Philadelphia responded every time. I mean, there was they were up by twenty at one point, then it got cut down to like six or seven, then they were up fifteen again, got cut down to eight or nine. So there were some big moments, and that run that you're talking about, it wasn't just that steal. It was the last forty five seconds of the of the half that there were. 
a bunch of just momentum swinging plays, mainly by Jimmy Butler, that I that I think were huge. Um, going forward, I like Toronto. I just I I, I kind of believe in this Toronto team. I think I'm probably buying into the cult of Kawhi a little bit here and just what he's done. Um, but uh, I'm I'm gonna roll with them in this series, and I'm gonna and I think the home court will, will take an advantage. Uh, will kind of be an important here. Yeah, I, I would take Toronto in Game Seven. I just don't trust Philly on the road to do it with the pressure. I think they've shown some flaws along the way. Embiid's inconsistency, Simmons, you know, being kind of hit or miss, whether he has an impact or not. Harris, to me, has really been underwhelming throughout this postseason, and that just leaves them so reliant upon Butler. And if it's going to come down to Kawhi versus Jimmy uh, in a Game Seven, I think I'd probably take Kawhi there. Um, which team would you rather see in that Eastern Conference Finals? Because we know Milwaukee's locked in. And they looked great yeah. in the first round. They looked maybe even better in the second round, frankly, because the competition was a little bit stiffer and they responded so well. Would you prefer a Toronto-Milwaukee series or a Philly-Milwaukee series? I would prefer Toronto, in part because I just trust them to be good. I mean, Philadelphia's best and their worst are so are so wide. The gap between their best efforts and worst efforts, I think, are, are much different than Toronto, and I just trust Toronto to give a good series. And then also, going into the playoffs, I thought those were the two best teams, so that's my pick. What about you? Um, man, I could honestly make arguments either way. I mean, you made a strong argument for Toronto. I think the argument for Philly boils down to that one incredible regular season game, uh, probably in March, right? When Philly and, and right. uh, Milwaukee just kind of lit everybody yeah. up on that weekend game and, and the excitement level was so high. The matchups in that series would be fun. Uh, but frankly, Philly's annoyed me so much in this postseason <laughs> that I think I just want them out. Uh, it will be more fun, I think, from a you know column writing perspective. If Philly goes out in the second round, everybody can crush Elton <laughs> Brand for the trades, and we can you know yeah. talk up how incredible Landry Shamit is and, and do all that oh, good no. stuff. So I think I probably want that Toronto. Uh, you know, push comes to shove, I'll take Toronto versus Milwaukee. Oh, for the worst reasons. I actually, you know me, I, I'm here in Denver. I'm the t- small market champion. So a Toronto Milwaukee, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Eastern Conference Final. Just watching the NBA kind of panic that that's about to happen. Um, let's take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, there was another great Game 6 leading to another great, uh, you know, potential great Game 7 in, in Denver. And, um, God, who are they playing? <laughs> just let's finish the game. Portland. <laughs> Thank you so much. We're 15 minutes from that game ending. I already forgot. All right, we'll be right back. All right, back here on Locked on NBA and my guest today, Ben Golliver, the Washington Post. And we're going to move our attention now to the other series, one that has been really good. I think maybe the best series of this round. There's been some doozies, but this one has just been back and forth, kind of exciting, some pure basketball. Not a whole lot of like side narratives to this one, just the basketball narratives, which are kind of fun. Um, tonight, Denver goes into Portland. Up three games to two, must win for Portland, and Portland just did a phenomenal job uh, uh, of rallying, especially in the second half, and getting big contributions from a couple different places. CJ McCollum, 30 points. Damian Lillard, 32 points. And Rodney Hood, 25 big points on 8 of 12 shooting, 3 of 4 from the three-point line. Um, coming into this game, did you see it going back to Denver? I mean, it's been so close all along, you probably had to think that this was uh, such an even, even series it had to go seven. Yeah, I was I was leaning towards Portland winning. I wasn't super confident about it, but you know, I said earlier that I was disgusted by the teams that would, were losing in that Philly Toronto game. Yeah. It's been the exact opposite feel in the Denver Portland <laughs> game. I've just found myself gushing over these teams when they win. Like Denver's game four win after that overtime yeah. loss to me was the single most impressive win by any team in the entire playoffs. 
And you can make a strong argument that Portland's winning game three, going to four overtimes and gutting it out when Denver had multiple chances to win along the way yeah. uh, was the second most impressive win <laughs> of the entire playoffs. So I'm right there with you in terms of the intrigue from this series. Now, I would probably you know, lean towards Houston and, and Golden State just given the injuries, the refereeing in terms of, OK, what's the biggest series? What's everyone the talking about? The stakes are much higher in that series. Right, but this one has reached its complete peak. Like, if we were yeah. going back before the series started and saying, where's this series going to go? I say it's delivered an A-plus in terms of what you could have hoped for. Um, you mentioned Rodney Hood. I mean, he outscored Denver's bench. Did he double Denver's bench scoring by himself? And I, wasn't that the story, I think? Uh, you know, when I'm looking at this game, leaning so heavily on Zach Collins, leaning so heavily on Rodney Hood, at the expense of minutes for guys like Alfru Camino and Mo Harkless. I mean, that seemed like the adjustment uh, from Terry Stotts here. And those guys haven't always been huge for Portland. But, uh, you know, Zach Collins, even though he's, you know, 14-4, the, the five blocks jump off the box score, I think yeah. this is going to go down as the biggest moment of his young career to date. And then Rodney Hood, of course, I mean, he's in this incredible, uh, you know, reputation management mode right now where everybody wrote him off multiple times over the last couple of years. And here he comes out, you know, he's winning playoff games and, and potentially putting his team in position to go to the Western Conference Finals. The adjustment you talked about, Mo Harkless, 16 minutes, Al Farouk Aminu just under 17 minutes tonight. To me, that was really big. And it's hard for a team to go away from what they have been all year and to go away, especially as late in the se- series as they have. But those two guys, I think, have really hindered, um, you know, uh, p- what Portland can do because they just don't need to be guarded as much. And Denver, really vulnerable on the wing. Coming into the series, I think the people that covered Denver the closest saw Rodney Hood as that guy that that could be a major X factor because Denver, you know, they give up points to to small forwards who can score off the bounce every all the time, all season long. They just don't have a guy that can guard um, that position. And Rodney Hood, I think, I can't tell if he's playing above his head or if this is just what happens when you put such a negative defender on him. But he has been fantastic in the series, and tonight he looked like Kevin Durant. <laughs> yeah, that's high praise. Um, <laughs> I mean, but they won his minutes in a big-time way. Like, it wasn't just him going out there and getting, like, empty buckets, right? I mean, he's plus, plus 21. 21. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. In, in a game that they win by 11, I mean, that's that's really impressive. And, you know, you rewind two months or three months when they picked him up. I mean, no one would have seen that coming. And so he's absolutely playing above his head. But he's also taking advantage of a favorable matchup, which you described. And I think that kind of goes back to the coaching chess match of this series. Like, we've seen both coaches have real wins, right? Michael Malone yeah. uh, leaning heavily uh, into, the, you know, basically kind of trying to take Damian Lillard out of it, but then also going to Paul Millsap at some key moments and, and getting yeah. a lot of reliable scoring from him. Now you flip it back around, Terry Stotts dumps maybe some of the weaker wings uh, out of his lineups to get a little bit more pop and length from a Rodney Hood, and it pays off here. So, uh, again, you know, just a very entertaining series both ways. Paul Millsap, you mentioned him. He's a. Uh, it's weird to call him an X factor because of how important he is to Denver, but he's at the center of a, another very important matchup in this series, and that is him trying to carry the second unit. You know, Jokic is playing a ton of minutes tonight, only thirty-seven. He did foul out, but that second unit, Malone is searching for somebody to kind of carry and and keep them from hemorrhaging points. I think the Nuggets were up uh, eight or ten, yeah, eight points going into the second quarter. It only took two and a half minutes for that lead to completely evaporate, and that's been the story for the Nuggets this entire series. The bench just cannot play minutes without Denver falling behind. But Paul Millsap over the last two games has mitigated that a little bit by being able to attack um, some of those second-line defenders. You mentioned Zach Collins, who I think has been fantastic. But Evan Turner tonight, sneaky good defensively guarding Paul Millsap. He was Millsap 4 of 15 from the field. 
he's got to win that matchup. Evan Turner, you know, a big-bodied, smart player, but you got to count on Millsap to own those minutes. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, you mentioned Jokic's uh, fouling out, and that was one huge concern I had coming into the postseason about him. For the most part, he's avoided it. I mean, I think did he foul out the previous game too? He um, he did in garbage. They were up twenty, and I think yeah. he, he picked up like four fouls in the fourth quarter. To, yeah, but, I'm yeah. not mistaken though. That's that's the only time otherwise he's fouled out this whole way, and that's impressive given how tight a lot of those games they've been in, and obviously the overtime game too. So this leads my to my next question though. If you're putting the over under for his minutes in game seven, is it what is it, forty five point five? Yeah. Mean, where are we putting that? I think I think you put it right. I, I I would take the under, but only because I think it's forty five. So I may I might set the line <laughs> at forty five. There was the famous you know, the game, um the, the four overtime game where he played all but three minutes and I know a lot of people were critical. You can't play him that many minutes, but the truth was, every second he is on the bench, the Nuggets are just getting completely destroyed. So much of what they do on both ends, defensively as much as offensively, as crazy as it is to say, um, the Nuggets are relying on on him. And um, so, yeah, I think Game Seven, there's nothing left to lose. Um, he's played a ton of minutes already, but Malone through the regular season has really limited his minutes. I think he played 31 minutes per game throughout the regular season. I think he's ready for the workload. And in a game seven, to me, there's just no point in holding him out. No, and he's been so dominant in his minutes. I mean, the plus minus bears it out. Like when he leaves the court, they're up a Creek. So you kind of look at it both ways, right? It's like, well, he's been great in the minutes he's on the court. They struggle in the minutes when he's off. So you better keep him on. Uh, kind of no question about it. Look, I know you're embedded very deeply in the in the Denver Nuggets, so I want to give you kind of the 20,000-foot sure. uh, perspective on them. Michael Malone's trust in his key guys, both Jokic and, and Murray, to me, has been one of the coolest storylines of the whole postseason yeah. for any team. Um, sticking with Murray in Game 2 against San Antonio, obviously crucial decision uh, that paid off for him, and it has continued to pay off game after game after game here uh, from Murray. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, Malone caught some heat for how many minutes he's played Jokic at multiple times. You know, game seven, uh, he gets tired, and, you know, there's a lot of think pieces about that. You know, coming and playing him the 65 minutes that you mentioned in the four-overtime game where he's barely getting a breather from the end of the fourth quarter on. I mean, that's another situation where, like, uh, you know, your, your coach is exposed in that moment. For him to stand up for his players, to keep going to them, to let them decide these series when they're so close – uh, I love it, especially because both of these guys are young yeah. with very promising futures who are going to be making the most of these reps for the next five to 10 years of their career, right? Like they're, they're planting seeds right now that are going to pay off down the road. And uh, I've liked Michael Malone. I understand he gets criticized for it. I see all the, the perspectives on why people would be uh, a little bit skeptical of how he's handled that. Uh, but I do think uh, I'm on team Malone on this one. Monte, I think it helps. Monte Morris, two and a half minutes tonight, a minus seven, and and that's Oof. kind of on par for him in the series. I mean, he just is. He he was good in the regular numbers. season. He was he was a solid backup point guard uh, in the regular season. So that one really surprised me. Same could be said of Mason Plumley, who just hasn't been effective. Let me ask you this one though: Has your opinion? What was your opinion of Nikola Jokic coming into the playoffs, and and has it changed at all? And I guess the same thing for Jamal Murray as well. I've liked both those guys uh, basically all season. Um, I've been, an, you know, probably on the glasses half full side with both of them. To me, Jokic was top five MB, MVP candidate, no question about it. Mm-hmm. Right before the uh, playoffs started, I wrote a piece on him, and it's so funny because I went to see their last game uh, against Golden State in Oakland, uh, the last game of the regular season. They got absolutely destroyed. DeMarcus Cousins is taunting him. 
Uh, I mean, he was really humbled in that game. I mean, kind of picked apart, right? right yeah. And the whole premise of my piece was like, hey, let's not write off, play off Jokic just yet, right? <laughs> let's see what this guy can do. And you and you watch them go against Golden State, and like the whole premise seemed like it was kind of shot, right? Um, but I still stuck with it. I, once the matchups broke and you saw he could go against San Antonio, yeah. and then whoever was going to be in the second round, that looked pretty favorable. Yeah. Uh, but still, I mean, this guy's been an A-plus. For whatever your expectations of him, I mean, he's practically averaging a triple-double, it feels like. Uh, he's he's done a nice job of asserting his own offense, not just being that pass-first guy that we saw him in, in maybe the first game of the, the playoffs. He got his feet wet, and he realized, hey, I'm going to have to do you know a real heavy lift in terms of the scoring, he's delivered there. And then Murray, I mean, the knock on him has been the inconsistency. Yeah. He's been pretty darn consistent here <laughs> the last eight or nine games, has he not? I mean, you watch it a little bit more closely than I do, but I feel like every time I'm watching him, he's going out there and scoring 20 to 25 points, uh, you know, making some tough shots and, you know, playing his role too. I mean, there's been moments where he's tried to do a little bit too much, moments sure. where he's forced things. But, I mean, come on. How many 22-year-old point guards come into the the league and are ready to go head-to-head against you know, Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum for a shot at the Western Conference Finals. That doesn't happen very often. You mentioned just the growth of these guys, and to me that's – and I think Nuggets fans kind of have the perspective of this as well of – you know, getting past the first round was sort of the goal, I think, coming into the year, and everything else was gravy. But the way it's happened, um, the guys are just getting experience you can't you can't provide anywhere else, and and just to watch him grow in real time and kind of learn from it, and then watch the confidence. I think both guys are playing at as high of a confidence level as we've seen, and it probably has a lot to do with oh, we're in the playoffs and doing this still. You know, we we can we do belong here. We can hang right here. So um, it's been great to watch. Um, prediction for Game Seven, and also just. If there is an X factor, maybe for each team, who would it be? Oh, man, that's a great question. I will take Denver uh, at home in a close game. I think it's going to come back to Millsap. He wasn't the most mm. efficient guy in game six. I think he shot four for 15 from the field. Like like yeah. you mentioned, he kind of struggled with the defense on him. He's better than that. He's very experienced. He's one of the most uh, experienced, maybe if not the most experienced playoff player in this series. I think he's going to rise to the occasion. And then I think if you're Portland – if I'm Terry Stotts, I'm going right back to that Rodney Hood well. <laughs> I'm not even lying to you. Like <laughs> right. I might even ramp his minutes up even more than that. Agreed. He probably winds up being the X factor there. I mean, I think to me, we're at the point where like Damian and CJ are going to get their number basically yep. no matter what. Yep. And so it's who's going to be that third score. And I look up and down their list. Uh, I don't see a lot of other guys who are capable. I mean, to me, Canner... I, he's a warrior, but uh, you know he, I think he's at the point with his body where it's not really happening anymore. Uh, and the rest of Portland's bench has been real hit or miss. So uh, I think I, I'm defaulting to the most obvious picks here and going with Millsap and Hood. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I, I'm gonna agree on Millsap. I think Zach Collins. You mentioned him. I've been really impressed with him in this series, and I've always liked Zach. I've always been an Zach Collins believer. Not watching Portland as closely, you know, this year, I was wondering why he wasn't getting a ton of minutes, but. He's really been great in the series, and I think he just provides sort of um, the type of skill set that is giving Denver problems. So to me, if he has a good game, and more importantly, if he stays on the court, I think Denver might try to attack him quite a bit. Um, then, then I think Portland has a real shot at this one. But I'm also going to take Denver. Um, them being at home, I just you got to expect at least a little bit of contributions from guys like Gary Harris, Torrey Craig, Will Barton. If he's not suspended, there was a little kerfuffle at the end that maybe might lead to a small suspension. We'll, we'll find out. And then Malik Beasley, zero of eight tonight. Malik Beasley, zero of four from the three point line. Um, you know that's that, that's another guy that he he doesn't really lose games for Denver, but if he knocks down two or three three pointers, then he he can help win them. And at home, hey, there's let, a better chance. 
let me ask you real quick. How's that crowd been during the playoffs? You know, because I think <laughs> there, there's always, you know, people like to mock the Nuggets. Fans sure. They don't, they haven't shown up that much. The attendance numbers aren't that great. Um, I know there are some Portland media people saying, oh, look how late some of these fans are arriving in the game and all that. What's the atmosphere been like so, there in Denver? So the the first round, I thought the crowds were great, you know, sell out, everybody there, the excitement. One thing people don't realize, the Nuggets and Avalanche have both been in the playoffs, and I think it was something like 18 straight days there was a game at the Pepsi <laughs> Center. It was literally every other night for 18 days. And I think in the second round, they really ran out of steam. Games one and two of this uh, of this series, that was pretty pathetic crowds. People mentioned the the nobody should, the late arriving crowd. One of those games, to Denver's credit, there was some sort of security issue, and so half the arena was empty because people were lined up outside. So there was a little bit of that uh, going on, but no, they were pretty embarrassing in games one and two. I suspect game seven will be a very very good crowd. Um, but you know, I would hope so. That's a lot to ask, though. I mean, these tickets are not expensive either. If you're trying to go to both, I'm sure they have a lot of crossover fan bases there. I mean, that's a huge ask. 18 nights in a row. That's crazy. Yeah, it was pretty wild. It's it'll it's a memorable month for for Denver sports fans. But um, I'll tell you one thing I would change in all of sports that I I learned last week, and I think you probably are are, are familiar with this. They serve beer at Portland after the game to the media. It's by far the single greatest invention I've ever heard of in my life. Oh, yeah. It's a keg, too, right? I mean, it's the real deal. It's it's uh, an IPA. It's like a locally brewed IPA. It was yeah. delicious. It's as much as you want. This was, I couldn't believe this when I saw it. I'm not as like as traveled for covering NBA teams, but that, that to me was just the greatest thing. Yeah. I'm not a drinker, but if you if you look, maybe you can tell when you read some of these gamers. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, we'll, we'll go out on that. Take another break. When we get back, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up by talking about Houston and Golden State, the heavy hitter. We'll be right back. Here with Ben Golliver, the Washington Post, and uh, here on the Locked On NBA podcast. And you can check out all of the Locked On Network. You can do uh, there's Locked On NFL covering all 32 teams, Locked On NBA, Locked On Baseball. So whatever team you follow, get the inside scoop. And then of course, if your team is playing another team and you want to get their perspective on it, check out those shows as well. Um, ben, we got to close now on on the big one, the one you said was the the best series, and that is Golden State in Houston. Um, has this Let's forget about Kevin Durant for just a moment. Has the series gone to this point more or less how you expected it would? Um, I mean, it's been so wild. I mean, the, the officiating, the injury thing that you mentioned, uh, the crazy just no-show from Steph Curry and Game 3 <laughs> down the stretch. I mean, I can't say I predicted any of those things, and yet we're kind of in a very tight series where the, the main star guys have played very, very well in Kevin Durant and James Harden. You, you certainly expected that coming into the series. Yeah. Uh, and I think Houston's going to be able to take care of business in game six. They looked really sharp uh, for lots of games uh, three and four. And the fact that those games were close speaks just to, to how great Golden State is as a team and how well they were playing uh, with Durant in the lineup. And uh, I think they got that a big emotional lift after Durant's injury. And they it was just such an impressive collective effort from yeah. – the core four guys. I mean, Steph Curry got all the headlines for that fourth quarter performance. I think he had 12 points in the fourth quarter, and it was really impressive to see him finally break through. But Clay Thompson was huge. Draymond hitting that three-pointer yep. was huge. Iguodala stepping up and taking some of those defensive reps that Durant's been taking uh, was huge. And it was like a flashback to 2015 <laughs> and 16, which is exactly what Kerr said. And right. uh, 
you know, you, you're talking about, you know, drinking post game like the, the the reporters were doing that in Portland. I mean, Kerr's post game press conference, it's, it, he had that gleeful look, yeah, as if he had a, just had a champagne bath after winning a title. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that was the kind of mentality he was in. And um, well, you can imagine if they would have lost that game. I mean, the, the, oh yeah, everything would be completely different. No, the despair level would be on eleven, and then we'd be talking about the end of the dynasty, and yeah. uh, we'd be crowning James Harden as like the future of basketball, and, and the <laughs> narratives have shifted so so strongly. And I think that's why, though, looking forward to Game Six, it's a moment of truth for Steph Curry. It's a moment of truth for James Harden. Ooh. Like James Harden, this is the best opportunity you could possibly hope for to get yeah. through Golden State, right? Yeah. And then with Steph Curry, he's been taking crap for the last couple of years. Oh, you know. Uh, especially in this postseason, well, where are your numbers? And I think a lot of that criticism was unfair. Unfair, but now you've got this opportunity where, like, if you want to cement your legacy as a two-time MVP, put your team in position to to win another title, and you know, kind of get rid of all of the the nonsense uh, second guessers who were kind of coming out of the woodwork here over the last uh, say a month. Well, here's your opportunity to do it, and you could tell that team believes in him. You know, yeah. he he put the team on his back. Everybody else's effort level stepped up right there with them, and uh, you know it was it was a wild scene in Game Five. Now, all that being said, I expect a Houston victory in Game Six. You know, I I think that Harden, this is his time to to deliver, and he didn't have the best fourth quarter. I thought he took a little too much criticism there because their offense was actually really efficient down right, the stretch. Right. Uh, but you know, still one like, shot in the last the eight and a half minutes. Still, still always weird, especially when you lose. Right, and and so it's a new day, right? Like yeah. he's played to me, he's been an A to an A plus in this series consistently all the way through. When you look at how much defensive attention he gets, what kind of a load he carries, how Chris Paul hasn't really been there to support him. So don't let all of that hard work work go to waste. Like I think that would be my message uh, to James Harden if he was uh, if I was his life coach. <laughs> Come on now, <laughs> <laughs> life coach, I like it. So let me ask you this because this is one of the narratives that comes out of it, and I actually think there's at least a kernel of truth to it. You mentioned they kind of came to life and they played inspired at that end there. Do you think, forget better or worse for a moment in a vacuum, but just do you think Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Iguodala, Draymond Green, do you think those guys have a style of play that when Kevin Durant is just out of the picture, it's like, oh, we can go to this now and, and we know how to at least play this to the best of our ability? It's been a tricky season for Golden State because, look, like you could talk about those guys' style of play. No one was complaining about their style of play with KD <laughs> in 2017 when they right. went 16-1 through the playoffs, right? right. I mean, it's some of the most beautiful basketball you've ever seen. And you look at these guys, I mean, their bench has been terrible all year, so there's no question they yeah. were pacing themselves. Draymond put on like 625 pounds during the regular <laughs> season. I mean, like he's openly admitted right, that, that he wasn't uh, you know, all the way there. And then they were dealing with injury issues and absences during the regular season from those guys too. So uh, – I think it's unfair to Kevin to be like, oh, you're cramping these guys' style, right? But um, at the same time, he has done so much for them, and it's very natural. I mean, guys will always look to the best player in the big moments, and every time Golden State's need a a basket, no, it's true, though. Every time during the postseason that they need a basket or they need a stop, the answer's always been Kevin, 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 and he's come through time and again for them. Now he's not there. You look at these other four guys, they're looking around at each other and saying, well, we need to go ahead and take our little portions of what Kevin was doing and step up our own game. So now you see Steph doing more pick and rolls. The ball's in his hand more. He's shooting more. Now you see Clay Thompson not thinking twice about any shot that he gets. If he gets a good look, he's going to take it. You see Draymond hitting the the glass even harder than he was before because Kevin's not there to help him. And then you see Iguodala taking on more on-ball defensive responsibilities 
because again, Kevin was really welcoming that challenge from James Harden and kind of, you know, going one-on-one there in a lot of situations with him and they don't have that luxury anymore. So it's like they've divvied up all of his responsibilities among each other and uh, they have a lot of chemistry and shared experience together. So it's not a huge surprise to me that once they're all, you know, kind of back into that mode, that it looks pretty good. I say I like that take, not as in like, you know, a hot take. I just like the perspective of what you just mentioned. Kevin Durant is so good. Relying on him is smart, like relying on him to do a lot of stuff. But then when you don't, everybody else is sort of pushed to their own limits. And not that it's better or worse, but it's just that those guys kind of can rise to a new level and sort of tap into something that maybe has been a little bit – you know, diminished over the last couple seasons that, that kind of reminds you, oh, yeah, those four together just have this, this chemistry and this, this style of play that, that is pretty spectacular at its best. Yeah, there is a flip side, though, and it's that Kevin covered up a lot of mistakes yep. and a lot of inconsistencies, right? Steph Curry's been in foul trouble. He hasn't shot the ball well. Clay's been in, or out of, in and out of the uh, rhythm in terms of his offensive impact. And then Draymond, I think that his impact at home has been much more significant in this particular series than maybe it was on the road just because guys like P.J. Tucker are flying around uh, when they're in in the Toyota Center. Uh, Just kind of a natural thing, you know, if you're an energy guy, you know, being able to bring that at home a little bit more. So they don't have that security blanket anymore, right? So now they can no longer afford Steph to go out there and have a cold 16-minute shooting stretch. Like that's no longer an option for them. And so – not only are these guys in position to be able to do more, but they're also facing significantly more pressure individually. Yeah. Do you have, is there an update on Kevin Durant and, and or, or a time frame for when we'll receive more information? So they called it officially a right calf strain. Uh, in the past, he's missed about a week with those. It okay. sounds like they're essentially saying he's, you know, he's out for game six for sure. Right. It sounds like he's more or less out for game seven for Ooh. sure. And it could be a situation where he may even miss, you know, a game or two, depending on how the schedule shakes out, if they were to advance to the the Western Conference Finals. So, I mean, they avoided the worst case scenario because, you know, in the building, everybody thought Achilles, Achilles, Achilles. Right, and even right. The players and the coaching staff mentioned that. So, of course, you love to see that for Kevin because uh, that would have just been a devastating blow in the middle of what's been the kind of the best stretch of basketball of his career. Um, but still, this is no laughing matter. You know, I mean, uh, yep. the prospect of trying to get a road win in Houston with Kevin Durant was was pretty tough, as we saw last week. Uh, it's even tougher without him. And then if it winds up being in game seven, like I mentioned, the pressure just ratchets up that much more. Uh, and the guy who's been so money and so cold and just cold blooded uh, down the stretch of games for him, for them, uh, won't be out there to, to help them do it. Is, is this the best you've ever seen from Kevin Durant? Is this his best oh, yeah. season? No, I mean, I don't know about the full season. I think he had a good season. I think he had an underrated season, honestly. I don't officially vote anymore because the the Washington Post won't let me vote, but I would have had him on my top five MVP ballot, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of people wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but to me, the postseason has been the best stretch of his basketball. Yeah. Uh, no question. I mean, the mastery has been unbelievable, whether it's the technique, shooting. I mean, he doesn't get enough credit for getting to the free throw line. This guy lives on the free throw line. Everybody talks about Harden's free throws. Uh, you know, Embiid's free throws, a couple other guys, Giannis's free throws. I mean, KD punishes defenses, and, you know, he's so skinny it doesn't look like that. Right. Uh, but he absolutely puts that kind of pressure on them. And then the distributing from him has been on a whole different level. Mm. That's the one thing that he really added to his game since coming to Golden State is a much more honed, uh, intelligent, uh, trustworthy uh, passing dimension, whether it's out of the post or from the top of the key. And then I think defensively he's been showing pretty good effort now. 
he was getting pushed pretty hard in this series because he had to cover a lot of ground. They were doing a lot of switching. And I think he was even admitting that there was times where there was mental lapses on the rebounding because he was mm. working so hard yeah. uh, defensively. But you look at big picture. I mean, his numbers are out of this world. And to me, he's been the best player in these playoffs, yeah. you know, with uh, a tip of the hat to uh, Kawhi and Giannis and Harden and, and all these other great performers. Right. Um, so let, let me just set a table for you. I, we don't know what's going to happen in game six, but let's just say that Houston wins comfortably. Like a 10 to 12 point win, you know, it's always within reach, but they pull away at the end. What would you say going into game seven with no KD? How would you feel about that? Uh, I think I would still take Golden State to win. I, I, I can't. Uh, overstate how tough it is to win in Oracle. Now, they didn't make it look tough in that first-round series when they're blowing a 31-point lead and they're taking <laughs> their right. off the ball and losing multiple games to the Clippers, right? But, I mean, that crowd rallied, uh, and you could see that the disorientation was experienced first by Golden State in that third quarter when they first lost uh, Durant, but Houston looked pretty disoriented down the stretch of that game, and actually their post-game comments, everybody was like asking you know, D'Antoni and Chris Paul and, and James Harden, like basically like what happened? Like, you know, this was your opportunity. And they were all just like, I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to check the tape. I'm not sure what happened. Like, I really feel like uh, the emotion of the moment, uh, the unexpected nature of Durant's departure, you know, Curry's breakthrough, all of that just sort of, you know, scrambled pe- people's brains a little bit. And I think that's a very common experience that we've seen teams undergo in, in Oracle Arena. I don't think it's by accident. Like I said, Draymond plays his best basketball there. So if I had to pick how this series winds up, I would say Warriors in seven. And I feel like that's probably the most conservative of all the possible picks. Ben, it sounds like we're headed for a crazy Sunday, which which I'm all for. <laughs> how, how is your mom going to handle that? You know, it is Mother's Day, right? <laughs> it's good terribly. Uh, my wife as well, the mother of my children as well. So um, it's, it's going to be a tough one. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'll figure out a way to get through it. Fortunately, my wife's a basketball fan, as is my mother, so... Um, you know, there's something there at least. Uh, ben, thanks so much for, for uh, hopping on the show and giving us your thoughts. This was great. It was a, a great time. Have fun covering Game 7 there in Denver, and uh, we'll talk soon. And everybody else will be back again on Monday with brand new episodes. We'll see you all then.